0: My brothers and sisters, hear the word of the Lord for us this morning out of Matthew chapter 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when he saw them, when when he saw them, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. This is the word of the Lord. God, God, we do give you thanks for speaking to us again. Lord, help us to hear it, not simply with our ears, but with our hearts so that we might be transformed, we pray, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated, and as you are being seated, I want to take a second and thank those of you who have been praying and have prayed for uh, the wedding that we experienced at my daughter's wedding last week. It was very wonderful, it was glorious, and thank you for those of you who took time to pray about that. I would like to be able to tell you uh, I was an emotional rock. No tears were shed. I would like to say that, but I can't, so we'll just skip right over that. We are dealing with our essential series And uh, for us today, I'd like to affirm an essential truth. Now, the idea is that this is something that is fundamental to our church, and this is a guiding principle of our church. It's not just fundamental in the fact that we believe it, but it's something that guides us. As a response to our salvation by God's free grace, believers are to live a godly life according to his word, full of praise and worship, sharing the gospel of christ throughout the world and ministering to others in his name so an essential teaching that you are going to hear at this church is as a response to what god has done for us as a response we are to live a godly life and that godly life is to be modeled in part according to the word of god full of praise and worship sharing the gospel of christ throughout the world and ministering to others in his name now We capture that in part as a statement that fulfills that which we have taught here at the church through many ages and through many times, and some of that is captured in the affirmation of faith that the Westminster Confession puts forward for us, and I would like, if we could, to kind of affirm that together so it would be a response, or I mean sorry, a unison reading from the Westminster Confession of Faith here regarding this Uh, understanding of our faithfulness in terms of leading our lives as Christians. So let's affirm what we believe together. Please read this with me. In the gospel, God declares his love for the world and desires that all should be saved. He reveals fully and clearly the only way of salvation, Jesus Christ. He promises eternal life to all who truly repent And believe in Christ. He invites and commands all to embrace the offered mercy, and by his Spirit, he pleads with men to accept his gracious invitation. Thank you. Throughout the time we've been looking at the essentials, we've been trying to make the point, and I hope that it's come across, that our salvation, everything about us, rests on the initiative of God himself, that it is Jesus Christ and his free grace that brings us to the point of salvation. It is not based on what we do. It is not something that we prepare ourselves for. This is something that God acts and enacts in our lives. This is part of the reason why we stress the notions of the free grace of Jesus Christ. This is not something that we earn. It's not something that we merit. It's not something that we work hard to try to accomplish. And the scriptures are clear about this, that our salvation rests only in Jesus Christ and upon his work in our lives. Now having said that, the scripture is also crystal clear that there is a response, that there is a a life that we are to live having experienced the salvation that Jesus Christ has given to us. Now we make great pains and we need to make great pains to make sure that we don't mess up the order. I, my, my household in general is much more joyous when the hometown team wins. Uh, There's much more pleasure and joy that happens around my household when the home team is victorious. Uh, And that's certainly the case with the Steelers. And so whenever the Steelers win, there's a certain satisfaction, happiness in my household, and that's a great thing. But I am not nearly so egotistical as to assume that my happiness somehow leads to the Steelers winning. There's a cause and effect here. The Steelers win, I am happy. It's not the other way around. I am happy, therefore the Steelers win. In the same way, the scriptures make it clear that God is the one that saves. God is the one, salvation rests in God alone. God is the cause of the salvation that is ours, the redemption that is ours, the, the blessings that come to us through Jesus Christ. He is the one who gives us that great blessing. Now, once we are recipients of that great blessing, there is a expected, a natural response that arises because of it. We naturally do something because of the work that God has done for us, and the Scriptures articulate in many different places what that response is. We summarize it by simply saying something like, we are to live a godly life according to the Scriptures. The Scriptures not only tell us that our response to God's salvation is to live a godly life, but the Scriptures also tell us what that godly life looks like. We live a godly life in light of the Scriptures, not to try to gain our salvation, but because God so freely has given us salvation. Uh, one of the great temptations, of course, in life, and we have looked at this in the past couple of weeks, and this has infected or been a part of every one of our essentials that we've looked at so far, is that we have a tendency to place ourselves at the center of the story. And by doing that, to make our effort, what we do, s- central to the salvation story. It is not. But we do have a response to the salvation story. And that's summarized lots of different places in the Scripture. But one of the spots that I thought we would look at today is in Matthew 28, the passage that I read, a familiar passage. I use it almost every time I do a baptism. I think that it's helpful to hear the overarching story, which I find is captured well in these ending verses of the Gospel of Matthew. And so I read it a lot. You've probably heard it a lot. As a matter of fact, we might suffer a little bit by hearing it so often that we're not paying enough attention to it. So, I believe this text does a great job of setting up for us what our response should be to the gospel. Now, why do I think that? Well, because of its position historically in the story. If you look again in your scriptures, if you have them open, you can follow along a little bit about this. But at the beginning of chapter 28, Jesus has been crucified. Our Lord and Savior has been crucified for our sins. You know that story and the centrality of that story. And at the beginning of chapter 28 is that glorious moment where the Father raises the Son, where Christ is raised from the dead in all glory and in majesty. And then we have those experiences that take place in and around Jerusalem. We know of Jesus appearing to the disciples at multiple times while they are in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas. The other gospels detail a lot of those interactions that Jesus has with the disciples. Here, in this passage, Jesus meets with the disciples after he is raised from the dead in his resurrected beauty and wonder. He meets with the disciples in Galilee. Now, Galilee is, a, at best, a, oh, a two-day walk, a sure or so, from Jerusalem. So this is clearly sometime after the previous resurrection experiences. So the disciples have had interactions with Jesus as he has been raised. And now we come to this spot where he meets with them in Galilee. He evidently had told them some point along the lines, I want to meet you in Galilee. So they go, the disciples go to Galilee and we meet up with Jesus. And here is the passage that Jesus then directs and says to them, having met me as the risen Lord, here is the godly life that I want you to live. Having met me as a risen Lord, here is a godly life that I want to live. I draw your attention to verse 17 to begin. And when they saw him, uh, you notice that I stumbled around trying to get the pronouns right there. So let's be clear here. When they, the disciples, saw him, Jesus, the risen Lord, when they saw him, they worshiped him. Now, I don't want to skip too quickly past this because this is the first element that marks the appropriate response of the disciple. Now, as you know, we're going to get to a spot here where Jesus then commands and says to the disciples, this is what I want you to do, but all that happens within the backdrop of that initial thing that takes place whenever any disciple, listen carefully, when any disciple of the Lord comes face to face with the risen Lord, there is only one initial response. That is worship. Think about Peter, when he first sees Jesus for who he truly is. Think about the leper who has been healed, the prostitute who has been forgiven, uh, doubting Thomas, the apostle John at the end of Revelation. Every one of these people, every one of these instances, when they first see Jesus as he really is, there's only one thing they possibly can do, and that is to fall down and worship him. Now, I'm stressing this, we try to stress this here at Hebron because we have that little, you know, a nickname summary of our ministry here, worship plus two, and the plus two is service, and the plus two is education, and so we want you to grow and mature in your understanding of the scriptures, and we want you to serve and minister faithfully to other people, but the one that gets named is worship. Worship plus two more. Because worship has got to be central, fundamental to every believer. There should never be a second where there's an opportunity. Okay, I'm going to sound very preachy here. There should never be a chance that you have to come to corporate worship where you don't come to corporate worship. This is your chance to come face to face with the risen Lord. Now, We happen to know that the risen Lord meets us every minute of our life, in everything we do. That's where the risen Lord is. That is why the Christian life needs to be marked first and foremost by worship. It is true, every second of your life is a life that is dedicated to worship. But when the body gathers together in worship, please, I beg you, don't miss it. Why? because the first and foremost response of every real disciple is to worship the Lord. Don't miss any opportunity to worship the Lord. Shape the entirety of your life around ensuring that you get into places where you are worshiping Jesus Christ. Individually, yes, of course. But with the body, absolutely. Yes, it's going to mean that you have to reshape a lot of important things in your life. Do it. Because nothing is as important as seeing the risen Lord and falling on your face to worship Him. And if that's not your feeling in the morning, if that's not your sense here at worship, if that's not what's grabbing you every second of your life, talk to me. Talk to somebody, because I desperately want you to see the Lord as he really is. And if you do, you can't help but fall before him and worship. But notice the end of that verse. It's kind of freaky. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, I read this long commentary over the past couple of weeks that has tried to make the point that there's two different groups of people here. Uh, You've got the 11 disciples who worship Jesus and then you've got this other group that doubted. Now the doubt here is hesitancy or wavering, something along those lines. And the point of this author was, look, there's a mixed group here of those who are committed in worshiping the Lord and there are a mixed group and there are other people that are doubting, that are not yet certain. And I sit and I think, uh, and and you can read the text that way. Grammatically, it's possible, so I don't want to completely toss that idea out. But I think that misses the point. Certainly misses my point. It misses me. Because I find all through my life that the moments of great faith are tied so intimately with moments of great doubt. I don't think we're talking about two different groups of people here, those who worshipped and those who doubted. I think what we're doing is that the author is recognizing that there, what is true with so many of us, the great passage in Mark chapter 9 where the, where the, boy, the man with the boy who is, needs to be healed cries out to Jesus, Jesus, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Both held together. At the same minute, I just made an impassioned plea for you to spend every opportunity you can in worship to the Lord, and I absolutely mean it. But I also recognize that every person here is going to struggle with doubt, is going to waver, is going to be hesitant, And the beauty of Jesus in this spot is that he doesn't sit here and say, you guys who are worshiping me, let me talk to you. And you who are doubting, be cast aside. No, he doesn't do that at all. He looks at the group and speaks to everyone who is both worshiping and doubting all at the same time. I've got wedding on the brain. So my children, my daughter and her husband now, are just in the midst of trying to figure out what every Married couple has to figure out how it is that God has made two to become one. How does the two learn to live as one? Well, they're one week in, so they're terrible at it. Uh, I'm thirty, years. I'm thirty-four years in, and I'm terrible at it. But the point is that I know that it is true. I am one in my marriage. And I am also incredibly selfish in my marriage. All at the same time, we can fall down on our faces with legitimate and real praise and honoring of the Lord. And at the same time, be well aware of the doubt and the wavering, the hesitancy that fills our hearts. The Lord encourages us to come and worship him and I don't want you to miss any opportunity. So then Jesus says these words in verse 18 to the disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, why does he make this announcement? All authority has been given to me because he's about to commission them. He's about to give a charge to the disciples. And again, I'm making the point that this is a charge to every disciple in this room. Jesus gives this charge to every one of us in this room. And so first what the, Jesus does is he does what any good commanding general is gonna do as he is sending his troops into the battlefield, he gives them a pep talk. This is a preliminary pep talk for what Jesus is about to say. But listen to what the pep talk is. The the commanding general normally says, you know, I'm pretty sure that if you go over here, you won't run into too many enemy, or, you know, we'll be able to take this hill, or we'll be able to accomplish this, or something like that. This commanding general looks at every one of us, his disciples, and says, listen to me. All authority is mine. All power is mine. You're about to go into the midst of the battle. You're about to go struggle with the power of sin in your own life, and the power of sin in our society around us, in the the grip of the devil, and yet know this. All authority is mine. Now go, now what does he say? Verse 19 here, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I command you. Okay, now if you look at that, if you're looking at it, you could see that Jesus is, is commanding four different things. He says, I want you to do these four things. I want you to go, I want you to make disciples, I want you to baptize people, and I want you to teach them to observe all that I, th-. you know, it reads exactly like that. Uh, If you slow down and you read the text a little bit slower, it really comes a little clearer. There's one main verb. Jesus is commanding one thing here. Make disciples. Everything else tells us how we are supposed to make disciples. This is the godly life that God has set up for us and says this is the appropriate response to the salvation that is given to you by the cross of Jesus Christ, make disciples. Now what does it mean to make a disciple? What is a disciple? A disciple at the very foundation, at the fundamental aspect of a disciple is it somebody who walks in the footsteps of, somebody who follows along after, who walks in the footsteps of, of somebody else. Um, when I grew up, my father was a land surveyor, so he spent a lot of time in the woods and in fields and stuff like this, and I, uh, as a young child, would help him occasionally. At, this start. at one point, we were crossing basically a bog, a swamp, and my dad was in the front, and I was carrying all the equipment and stuff like that, and he said, make sure you put your feet right where I put my feet. And I have to tell you, after the first time that I missed and went into the bog, after that, I followed him exactly where he put his feet, I put my feet, and I couldn't do that if I wasn't looking at him closely, if I wasn't intimate, close to him. I couldn't let him get too far away from me. I had to be close to him. I had to be looking where he was going. I knew a little bit of the direction that he was headed, and that's what it meant for me to follow closely after the Lord. That's what it means for you to be a disciple. To put your feet, it doesn't mean, by the way, to think like Jesus, or to act like Jesus, or to do the things that Jesus did. It sort of means that. But when we go down those paths, we make ourselves, we fall away from Jesus because we think, well, Jesus wants to do this, or Jesus would have me do this, or something like that. A disciple is somebody that follows after Jesus, What is the call of the godly life? It is to make disciples of all nations real quickly. Jesus' authority is how big? He has been given authority in heaven and on earth. He has universal authority. He has a universal mission. All peoples will hear the gospel message. So go, therefore, into all the world and make disciples. The go Sounds like it's a command. It's not. The real, only real command here is make disciples. Go kind of has an imperative force to it, a commandish force. But basically, it tells you how you're supposed to make disciples. Okay, you want to live a godly life. I'm haranguing you here to live a godly life. How do, how do you live a godly life? You make disciples. How do you do that? Go. Go. Now, this passage is not a call for everybody to be a missionary. This passage is not a call just for those uh, special Billy Graham types or ordained people or for the church as a whole. This is a call for each one of us individually that each of us are to go. No, that doesn't mean you're supposed to pack up and leave to Sudan or wherever. Maybe, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. What it does mean is as you are going, that's the way to understand this go, the, command of, the force of the word command to go is as you are going, make disciples. In other words, as you are doing whatever you are called to do, as you are going, make disciples. This brings to mind the Deuteronomy 6 passage where we are told that when we sit at home We're supposed to talk to our kids about the Lord. When we get up and walk along the way, we're supposed to talk about the kids at home. When we rise in the morning, we're supposed to talk about the Lord. When we go to bed at night, we're supposed to talk about the Lord. The point is, everything we're doing, we're supposed to be talking about the Lord. The point is here, everything, wherever you go, make disciples. Wherever you go, in whatever God has called you to, the task of a godly life is to make disciples disciples. And how do we make disciples? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Welcoming them. Welcome them. Introduce them. Encourage them. But to do what? If you join a soccer club, you're going to learn to play soccer. If you join the knitting club, you're going to learn to knit. If you join Civil War (laughs) reenactment, he gads. Uh, if, you, if you, you know, you're going to learn to be a Civil War reenactor or something like that. When you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not learning, you are following. You are, you are being intimate with. That's why the baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, we are welcoming them. We are encouraging them to have a personal relationship with Jesus Get there and know the man. Get there and know the Lord. Get there and know the one who guides and directs all things. That's what it means to make a disciple, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. Teach them. There's an educational part of what we are doing, but it is not a list of doctrines that we're supposed to believe. It's not a list of things that we're supposed to do. It is that we are supposed to observe all that the Lord has commanded. All that the Lord has commanded, we are to observe that. And behold, I am with you until the end of the age. Look in verse 20 here at how this ends. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Please notice again how careful the gospel writer is, how careful Jesus is. The I is emphatic. Jesus here, this is in in the Greek text, it's underlined and bolded and italicized. I am with you always. And it is not, I will be with you always. As though, if you go, then I will be with you. The King James translates this, lo, I am with you always. Um, And I heard some uh, preachers uh, go on for some time about, if there's no go, there is no lo. So if you don't go, then lo, he will not be with you. The text explicitly denies that. He says, I am with you, therefore go. I am with you always. So our Lord has all authority. Our Lord sends us into all the world. The Lord commands us to teach all of his teachings. And the Lord will be with us always, until the end of the age. That's what it means to live a godly life. Man, do I want you to do that. Begin even now. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, we ask for your blessing upon us here as we turn from the scripture now to the response to the scripture, that you would open our hearts more and more to the response of faithfulness, that we would know of your love and your care for us. Lord, make us to be godly disciples in your eyes, we pray. You have sent us, you have commissioned us, as whatever we are doing, wherever we go, Lord, have first and foremost that godly life in our minds, that we would worship you faithfully, that we would introduce others to the gospel message, and that we would serve others, as you have served and led us. We pray through Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we ask. Amen.